Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You are now listening to This Week Explained. And welcome to This Week Explained. I'm Tiana with Carvin as my co-host, and together we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. So let's just get right on into it. What is on the agenda this week, Carvin? All right, the two big ones, Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas. Those are still ongoing. But there's uh, been a breakthrough with the Sweden ascension into NATO. We'll talk about that and where it stands right now. Um, Iran has vowed revenge against Israel for taking action on one of their generals. And the U.S. is finally, after months and months of rockets hitting, you know, U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria, they're finally taking the fight to the Iranian proxies. And we'll see where that goes. Is it going to bring the U.S. into a proxy, into a war in the Middle East? Maybe, maybe not. And then I want to end on uh, China. Because China has recently this week sent a warning to U.S. allies in the Indo-Pacific to stop being allied with the United States. <laughs> you get there? <laughs> Was that I'm a shocker? Just, Was that a shock to you? It's just funny how quickly the hope that people may have felt whenever they had that summit. Oh, <laughs> it yeah. Seemed, it seemed kind of hopeful. and We'll probably talk about that a little bit at the end, too. So. Oh, okay. Because it's just a major escalation it seems like oh yeah to me where they're just so emboldened that they feel like they can boss everybody around they're bossing everybody around right now yeah and and then one thing that if you want to speak about more conflicts uh one thing we won't get into today because it just started happening i need to do some more research on it uh the uk sent naval vessels to guyana to protect the people there and as you would expect, Venezuela was not happy about that. So um, they, have, they had that they had that vote. <laughs> they did. Yeah, they that's what that Venezuela they, says. Venezuela had that vote, and they decided that that was their land. You don't remember that? Okay, I do. But they mobilized their navy, um, and <sighs> so we'll see where that goes. You'll probably see an Instagram post, and we will definitely get into it next week. But there's just. Uh, not enough information right now to actually start discussing it here. So, Okay, well, let's get into it. What is the latest coming out of Ukraine? Well, the war in Ukraine, you know, it's been a stalemate. Well, now it's kind of shifted a bit over the last week. And we're seeing Russia make some gains on the battlefield where the Ukrainian counteroffensive had made gains. Uh, but I want to talk about a recent U.S. intelligence report that said that the Ukrainian military, with the support of the U.S. and the West, obviously, has destroyed nearly 90% of the Russian army that invaded in February 2022. 
Now, the Russians have replaced those manpower losses, and they are ramping up their industrial base to improve their material losses. And this is at a rate that's much faster than they did pre-war. Um, so what we're seeing right now, and the reason, and I wanted to bring this up because we talked about it the whole since the invasion, and there were sanctions upon sanctions upon sanctions put on Russia. Uh, what we're seeing now is is the sanctions have done very little to affect Russia's ability to fight this war. Which I remember you stating that specifically that you didn't think sanctions were going to do much at yeah. all to slow them down. It actually so. emboldened. Uh, it emboldened Putin more, and it has actually improved the Russian military. So, go figure. Oh, that, that's so great. So, it sounds like we are closer to Russian eking out a victory than we are to seeing Ukraine turn the tides of the war in their favor, unfortunately. And the mm-hmm. last two weeks, um, we've discussed the hold and build strategy from the United States. Do you think Ukraine could actually continue the fight into 2025 with minimal minimal support from um, their Western allies? Well, if Ukraine does not continue to get support from the U.S. and Western Europe, it's highly unlikely they're going to be able to hold the line in this war through 2025. And then Putin knows that. So, so that's why you're seeing more reports about him being more outspoken for a peace agreement. Um, he thinks he has the upper hand in this. I think he'd really love to get a a pro-Russian peace agreement done before his election, you know, get those numbers way up Mm -hmm. in in that election. So right now, Russia holds the advantage in the war. Didn't Ukraine just successfully pull off an attack on a Russian naval vessel? I mean, it doesn't seem like they're backing down, even though the odds are stacked against them. Yeah, they are. They're not backing down. And, and this whole conversation of who's currently winning doesn't mean that either side has quit or will quit in this. Uh, Ukraine understands their sovereignties at stake, even if they lose and sign a peace deal and Russia gets those annexed areas. There is still going to be like a militant force in Ukraine that's fighting guerrilla warfare style against Russia. That battle is going to continue without a major battle. Um, so there is a lot at stake. And, and many within the U.S. do actually, so many within the U.S. Congress actually understands how crucial the outcome of this war is on a global scale. Well, I know we've alluded to this in several episodes, but what is at stake for the U.S. in this war? I mean, U.S. troops are not on the ground fighting, and the war is thousands of miles away. So why is there so much focus on giving Ukraine aid? Yeah, well, the the United States has a much higher stake in Russia's war than most people think. Um, just talking about regular, everyday. Uh, so a Russian conquest of all of Ukraine is is by no means impossible if all of that military aid is cut off and all all military assistance. And then if the U.S. does that, Europe will follow suit. Um, So at this moment, is Russia a direct threat to the United States? I don't think so. I don't think they have been. I think they've shown that their military force cannot keep up with the U.S. military. Uh, You know, I feel that China is the most direct threat to the U.S. Republic. But if we take Putin at his word, so he stated he wants to return the Soviet Union to its glory. A victory in Ukraine is the first step in that plan. So what are the sum? What are some? What are the sum? <laughs> what, what are the sum of all fears? This what is a good movie. Sum of all fears? I don't know if I've ever seen that movie, but that's not what I meant to ask. I got tongue-tied 
Okay. <laughs> Once again, I got tongue-tied. <laughs> what, so that's like the third time, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, so what are some of the implications of a Russian victory in Ukraine? Right, so... What could if happen? It, what could happen? If, it, if Russia wins the war in Ukraine, it will have... It will then have a larger and more experienced army than before. Uh, the United States and NATO are likely going to face a Russian military deployed along the NATO border. That's from the Black Sea to the Arctic Ocean. They're also going to face enormous costs and risks in deterring further Russian aggression against NATO itself. Um, the Russian economy is going to gradually recover as san- the sanctions erode. And even if the sanctions don't all of them erode, Moscow is going to develop ways to circumvent or mitigate the remaining sanctions. Over time, Russia is going to replace its equipment. They're going to rebuild and draw on the wealth of hard-won experience fighting in a mechanized war, which the U.S. has not done uh, since, man, it's been since, I would say, World War II. They have not been in a near-peer mechanized war. Um, That brings with it advanced air defense systems from Russia, and those are systems that only American stealth aircraft can reliably penetrate. Those are the type of aircraft that are going to be fighting in a war with China. So the U.S. may not have access to those aircraft. Um, So that means that Russia can pose a major conventional military threat to NATO for the first time since the 1990s, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So just as we talk about how lessons learned from the Ukrainian side help the U.S. in a future conventional war, the same is true and probably even more so for Russia since their troops are currently fighting the war. All right, well, let's move our attention to the other major conflict in the world, which obviously is Israel and Hamas. Mm -hmm. Um, Israel and Hamas continue fighting, and there's no ceasefire that has been agreed upon by either side. What is the current situation on the ground in Gaza? Well, I mean, as we all know, we're two and a half months into the conflict. There was that brief ceasefire smattered in the middle of the fighting right now. Uh, The IDF has continued its movement towards central Gaza. They continue to confront Hamas fighters within civilian locations. Mm -hmm. We'll be very open about this. The IDF does continue to strike civilian locations. Not a good look. That, That is causing... You know, a lot mm-hmm. of uh, animosity globally towards Israel. Right. And Hamas understands that. They understand the, clo- the, the current global sentiment towards Israel. So they continue to use human shields to obtain leverage over Israel on the global stage. They're winning the PR war. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely are. And then definitely within the United Nations. We've, I think we talked about this last week. Uh, is the United Nations anti Israel? Um, we talked about the 2020, the 20 in 2022, they put 22 resolutions against Israel and only nine against Russia who invaded Ukraine. <laughs> right. So it, it seems pretty one sided. Mm-hmm. And they also, by the way, they have still to this day not condemned Hamas for the October 7th attacks. The this UN is, hasn't? The UN has not. And this is a wow. sticking point for the US. So when you see the US has, you know, uh, recently the US abstained from voting in favor of right. a, a resolution for a ceasefire with the, within the UN. And that was the sticking point. Unless they condemn the attacks on October 7th, the U.S. will not vote in favor of a ceasefire resolution. Um, there, there are also 
talk about the UN again, and, and they need to be fair in this. There's been no discussion uh, on what appears to be video evidence of Hamas actually taking humanitarian aid at gunpoint before it can reach civilians in Gaza. Well, that's gross. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I hope we can all agree that peace should be the focus, you know, but has there been any peace plan brought to Israel and Hamas that would free hostages and possibly stop the fighting? Interesting you ask that because Egypt has put forward a draft peace deal and their plan involves a, a phased hostage release. We talked about it before. They, you can't just release all the hostages and just say go. It has to be phased. You can only do about a dozen at a time. They also want the establishment of a temporary Palestinian government of experts that would lead both Gaza and the West Bank. That would mean the, you know, the demise of Hamas as the ruling party within Gaza. Those are two things that Israel has asked for. The uh, proposed initial ceasefire from Egypt, this draft ceasefire, would allow the release of hostages by Palestinian militants, and that would be in exchange for Palestinian prisoners in Israeli custody, which Hamas has asked for. Well, how do negotiations proceed from there? All right, so the the negotiations would continue uh, during the ceasefire, so they would both say, well, you know, we're not going to fire on each other. And they would continue to extend the truce during that phased hostage release. Uh, simultaneously, Egypt has put up a plan for the government of experts during a transitional period. So this is where we would start to end the war in Gaza. There would be this transitional period. It would pave the way for Palestinian elections. If you remember, we talked about this before. Mahmoud Abbas has asked to not have elections because they know that they will lose. The Palestinian Authority will lose those elections. Um, this would pave the way for Palestinian elections. After that, Israel and Hamas would discuss an all-for-all deal. That means release all of the remaining hostages, everybody, men, women, because right now it's just women and children and old, you know, elderly people, people at risk. We would be talking about all IDF personnel released, all you know Hamas fighters released from from Israeli prisons, and um, then there would be other conditions like Israel withdrawing its military from Gaza. That would be a big sticking point, and then the other big sticking point for Israel would be Hamas has to stop firing rockets into Israel, and if they do fire rockets, we're back to war in Gaza. Now. The reception on both sides is mixed. Israel has largely rejected calls for a ceasefire because their stated end goal is the end of Hamas. They don't just want them to not be the government. They don't want Hamas to exist anymore. And Hamas insists on a complete end to the aggression from the Israeli side. But they've also publicly stated that as long as they exist, they are going to continue attacks similar to October 7th. So what's your take on these initial reactions? Well, I, it's a lot like the discussions between Russia and Ukraine. No no side wants to capitulate right now because neither side is really winning. Israel is said to be considering the proposal, uh, but its main focus is that uh, is their offensive. On the other hand, Hamas is demanding a complete end to aggression before they'll even agree to a ceasefire. Israel's not going to do that. So Hamas isn't, they're, they're going to reject any temporary or partial ceasefires and truces. Both sides are, are very cautious, uh, but you know what? The, the 
proposal from Egypt does open a channel for that further dialogue and getting people to come to the table. How does the U.S. feel about this proposal? I'm, it's, it's interesting because neither the president, neither President Biden, nor his National Security Council spokesperson, that's John Kirby, have actually addressed the matter publicly. Um, now, the U.S. is in close contact with Egypt and Qatar regarding hostage releases, but uh, I believe John Kirby right now is on the me- is on the border between the U.S. and Mexico, so that's the main thing that they're dealing with. And there are actually a smattering of proposals on the negotiating table from multiple sides, but none of them that fix the problem a- as we speak right now. So it remains to be seen if any of this, any of these plans, or anything's going to actually lead to a breakthrough and lead to peace. Well, let's get into the latest developments on Sweden's NATO membership bid and the intricate web of factors that are surrounding it. Uh, The Foreign Affairs Committee of the Turkish Parliament this week gave its approval for Sweden to join NATO. So can you break this event down for us? Yeah, it's uh, been a long road for Sweden in their, their desire to enter NATO. Now, we've seen Finland. Uh, They got into NATO very quickly. They got all the votes they needed, um, but Sweden's still waiting. Now, the, the recent approval from the Turkish Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee is a significant step. Let's look back a little bit, see how we got here. Initially, Turkey had concerns about Sweden's perceived leniency towards supporters of Kurdish militants and other groups that Turkey considers a security threat. Uh, this includes the PKK, uh, Also, it includes those associated with the 2016 coup attempt against Erdogan. Now, Sweden has responded recently by tightening anti-terrorism laws, and they're also cracking down on extremist support within the country. So it kind of seems like Sweden addressed Turkey's terrorism concerns. What else changed to ease Turkey's stance? Yes, there's a couple of crucial developments. Uh, Turkey also had concerns in the past that Sweden was allowing protesters to burn sacred uh, Quran texts. Turkey's uh, vehemently against that happening, the, the protests happening. So Sweden condemned those protests. They're cracking down on it. Also, NATO created a special coordinator for counterterrorism. They're actively involving Sweden in supporting efforts to reinvigorate Turkey's European Union ascension process. So that kind of stuff has been good for Turkey. Well, that's interesting. I mean, now President Erdogan linked Sweden's NATO membership to purchasing U.S. F-16 fighter jets, right? Didn't he say that? Yep. Okay, so what is the story there? Because that sounds yeah, different. It always yeah. seems like it's it's something, <laughs> but honestly, it's the, the F-16 fighter jets have always been the what Turkey has wanted. So they were always going to deny Sweden's ascension into NATO until they got those jets. And Erdogan said it himself. He made it clear that the ratification is tied to acquiring those jets. The U.S. supports it, but it's not a done deal right now because some in Congress oppose any arms sales to Turkey. They have concerns that um, Turkey's human rights record is not good, and it really isn't. Plus, Turkey has a friendly relationship with Russia and China at this point. Well, now, even if Turkey officially votes in favor of Sweden's ascension, Hungary has delayed their vote as well. So what's the Hungarian factor in all of this? Yeah, Hungary is also stalling Sweden's bid, and it has to be unanimous, like you said. Um, 
And they said it's because there are lies about Hungary's democracy that are spreading in the European Union and NATO. Because there's this geopolitical dance that's going on here. Hungary is using its veto power to leverage concessions from the European Union. That's where Hungary stands. But this move from Turkey towards ratification means that the time for Hungary to delay without getting called out publicly is running out. What are the lies about Hungary's democracy? Well, it's been a long-running issue with the European Union um, and, and Hungary, especially since Prime Minister Viktor Orban took power. Um, Orban, viewed by the European Union, he's viewed as a pro-Russian and pro-China leader, and so Hungary sides with with China and Russia. And the U.S. or the the European Union has also said he has a persistent disregard for Western values, which is one of the the key entry points into becoming an EU member. It's also been mentioned that since Orban regained office in 2010. He has exerted greater and greater control over the Hungarian media space, much like Putin has done within Russia. There's also recent reports of Russian-style troll farming on social media within Hungary, and that's not helping out in this dispute at all. So what's next in this process? Well, the the committee approval in Turkey is that one step. Um, It now needs full approval from the General Assembly, and then it gets Erdogan's signature. That's if they get the F-16 jets. You know, Turkey's ruling party has the majority, but Erdogan has insisted that the decision does rest with all lawmakers, not just the ruling party. Now, like I said, Sweden needs unanimous approval, and Hungary's nowhere near ready to provide their approval. So we have to see, when Turkey approves it, how close Hungary will be to being pressured into doing that. So it does look like we're going to enter 2024, still waiting on Sweden to get Sweden's ascension into NATO. Well, thank you for that little update. Let's get into a recent event that has ratcheted up tensions in the Middle East, which was the killing of an Iranian general in an Israeli airstrike near Damascus. Can you explain what happened there, please? Yeah, so this week, as you said, it was the Iranian general Razi Mosavi was killed in a targeted Israeli airstrike in the Syrian capital. It's in what you said, Damascus. Mosavi is a high-ranking officer in the IRGC, the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps. He's not a small figure. He's not just a regular old general. He played a key role in coordinating the military alliance between Iran and Syria. And this has come amidst already heightened tensions in the region, largely influenced by the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict that we see in Gaza. Now, Iran has wasted no time in pointing fingers at Israel. (laughs) So what's the official Iranian response to this incident? So Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, he vowed that Israel, I want to quote him here, will certainly pay for this crime. Um, Also, the Iranian foreign minister threw out a cryptic message. He said, I quote him as well, said Tel Aviv faces a tough countdown. That seems like it means time's almost up for for Israel and Iran going at it. This is a clear escalation in the war of at least words between the two regional adversaries could be escalating somewhere else too. So the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps has threatened direct action because 
who cares about international relations right now? We're all just yeah. saying whatever we want. Have you <laughs> seen 2023? Yeah, I've seen it. That's what I'm saying. We're all, <laughs> everybody's saying whatever they want. They're just trying to escalate things everywhere on all fronts. So yeah. can you break down what this might entail? Yeah. Um, so with with what the IRGC spokesman said, he indicated that the response would actually be a combination of direct action and actions led by what Iran calls its axis of resistance. So that's a term that they often use to refer to their Iranian proxies. Well, now, Israel has a history of airstrikes in Syria targeting Iran-backed groups. So how does this fit into the broader context? Yeah, they have. They've conducted numerous strikes in Syria, and they've often targeted groups supporting Bashar Assad's government, so not directly you know, IRGC generals. That's where this is a big thing for Iran. Uh, they, Israel also rarely confirms their operations. They say it is national security and it must be kept classified. Uh, but their focus is usually on thwarting Iran's attempts to supply weapons to its proxies. That includes Hamas, which Israel is engaged in a war with right now. So this recent incident where they attacked Iran directly is not helping the peace process in the Middle East, that's for sure. Since you brought up the war in Gaza again, how do these two things connect? Well, I mean, the, the Gaza conflict has sparked a ripple effect across the Middle East. You know, we had yesterday Iran said that the Hamas attacks on October 7th were because of the killing of Soleimani back in 2020, January of 2020. Hamas immediately said that is not what happened. We did it because of, you know, the mosque raid that Israel did in, in 2022. And so we're seeing fractures between Hamas and Iran right now, which is just incredible now today iran kind of walked back those statements and so now they've gotten back to a good relationship with their proxy in hamas but iran is still a staunch supporter of hamas they see itself duty bound to support what it terms their resistance groups they don't call them proxies but they do maintain that those proxy groups operate independently so that's how they get away with having the proxies attack U.S. bases, Israel, and they can stay away from it. So since Iran has tried to distance themselves previously from the war in Gaza, the IRGC suggests that the killing of their general is actually an Israeli attempt to widen the war geographically. This seems like a good time to segue to the fact that the U.S. military has begun to take the fight to what it perceives as Iranian proxies in Syria, Iraq, and the Red Sea, so what is the latest there? It's a complex situation. It's a lot of moving parts. After multiple months of consistent attacks from Iranian proxies in Iraq, coupled with the Houthis in Yemen attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea, the U.S. has finally taken the fight to those proxies, and they've struck strategic locations in the region. The most recent U.S. airstrikes, they say, were a response to a drone attack by Iran-aligned militants on the Erbil Air Base in Iraq. That's a U.S. air base. This attack left one U.S. service member critically injured, two others wounded. So the, the persistent strikes by the U.S., that actually targeted three facilities used by Qatayb Hezbollah and their affiliated groups. What exactly is Qatayb Hezbollah? Uh, they are a Shia militant group in Iraq. They have 
Uh, they're an Iranian proxy. The U.S. sees them as a significant threat to foreign entities in the region. That's why they conducted these strikes to disrupt their capabilities. The Iraqi government has condemned the airstrikes. They've cited them as a violation of it of Iraq's sovereignty. Well, let's get into the Iraqi response because they are allowing U.S. military personnel to operate within the country. But have they come out and condemned the attacks that are happening on these bases? You are right. The, the Iraqi government um, condemned the U.S. airstrikes, even though U.S. personnel are actively operating in the country. But yes, they did also stress that attacks by armed groups on military bases hold, hosting U.S.-led coalition advisors are considered hostile acts. So it's a delicate balancing act for Iraq. They, they don't want to cause a stir among their allies in the Middle East, but also they understand that they need to remain friendly with the U.S. in order to quell any militant uprising within that country. The geopolitical dynamics within Iraq seem very intricate. So what has been the response from Qatab Hezbollah? Well, they criticized the Iraqi government for condemning their attacks. They've also issued a warning and they vowed to continue the assaults on U.S. forces. Well, moving on from the Middle East, I want to get into recent comments from China towards U.S. allies in the Indo-Pacific what are the details there? And how close does this get us to a conflict between China and the U.S.? Well, I mean, like everything, it's a complex situation. So let's start with the, the South China Sea. China is urging the Philippines to stay out of their territorial dispute, uh, but it seems that things have taken a turn for the worse. So we got collisions, dangerous maneuvers, water cannon incidents, uh, an alleged sonic weapon attack by Chinese forces. And all of this started because the Philippines decided to supply forces, supply their own forces in contested areas. Now, what China is doing has drawn Western condemnation, especially from the U.S. They've emphasized its commitment under the 1951 U.S.-Philippine Mutual Defense Treaty. And China's response, on the other hand, has been firm. Their spokesperson labeled Philippine supply missions as provocations. They're just using that word all willy-nilly. Everything's <laughs> no, we <all>. provocation. <laughs> I'm offended. You're offended. I'm so mad. Anyways. You so get a provocation. I get a provocation. You, yeah, we're all. And then I'm also going to provoke you. And you're right. going to provoke me. All right. So how does this tie into Taiwan's situation, if at all? Well, it is It is connected. Um Taiwan, in its elections, is dealing with uh, the KMT party. We talked about them last week, uh, shifting their stance. They were once an anti-communist uh, party. Various KMT figures are now accused of trying to placate mainland China ahead of what's going to be a wholly contested election in January. Um, it's obvious China will attempt to interfere in the Taiwan elections. That's to establish the most pro-unification candidate as the winner. All of this is happening against the backdrop of U.S. concern over Beijing's unification of Taiwan. The U.S. is urging China to refrain from any military drills near that island. Before I move on to my next question, I just wanted to point out that you said Hotly. Mm. <laughs> and not Hotly, hotly. contested. Hotly contested election <laughs> in January. <laughs> okay, just wanted to say that. <laughs> it is in January. Whether it's Hotly or Hotly, 
We'll I was going to I was going to cut you off, but <laughs> I forgot that I muted my microphone. So I was sitting here like talking to myself and I was like, he's actually ignoring me. And then <laughs> he really wants to get too. through this. He really wants to get through this answer before he <laughs> answers for his tongue tie. <laughs> Anyways, so I do want to bring something up that wasn't in the rundown at the beginning of this episode we did a crossover episode with the guys at can we please talk and we discussed the china taiwan situation but we didn't have time to get into the wargaming aspect of the conversation i think it's important to highlight what is going on during these exercises and i know you have some insights because you've been involved in some of these war games so Firstly, would like to know if you are at liberty to say which side wins during these war games. I mean that that is a good question. Uh, what I can say is um, I, I am at liberty to say some of this, uh, or everything I'm going to say. I'm at liberty of saying. Sorry. Well, I hope so. Yeah. Um, at at least for the U.S. military, the war game is not usually a predictive exercise. Um, so what usually happens is that the allied portion of the war is significantly handcuffed and the opposing side is given a best case scenario for them during the war game. So with that knowledge, the US the usually the US aligned forces get obliterated in these war games. So it's like prepare for the worst, hope for the best kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, so why are these exercises set up in that way? Shouldn't we train how we intend to fight? <laughs> Well, I honestly, you learn more lessons in a loss than you do in a win. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of times it's a wake-up call to leadership. So I, I remember participating in exercises in California that's at the National Training, Training Center, NTC. And for me, at first, it was infuriating because uh, the chips were stacked against us. We kept failing. However, once I did get to Iraq and I saw how much that style of exercise benefited the way I went through the intelligence process and how I took a much more humbled approach to being an analyst, I understood why. Do you have any idea how the conflict to protect Taiwan will play out? A, a little bit, and you just never know, right, with humans. Right. Um, so it's going to depend on a lot of factors. But reading a lot about the likely scenarios, it is evident China starts with this opening bombardment that destroys most of Taiwan's Navy and Air Force in the first hours. The Chinese Navy will then encircle Taiwan and interdict any attempts to get ships and aircraft to the island. Then Chinese forces cross the strait, this being a mix of military amphibious craft, while air assault and airborne troops actually land behind the beachheads. So now they've got Taiwan surrounded. Now, the most likely scenario, the Chinese invasion quickly founders. Despite the massive bombardment, Taiwan is able to defend itself while China struggle to build up supplies and move inland, Taiwan's able to fight back. Now, meanwhile, U.S. submarines, bombers, and fighter attack aircraft are going to rapidly move to cripple the Chinese amphibious fleet. So, in the most likely scenario, Taiwan remains autonomous. They remain Taiwan. Taiwan wins. Now, there is one major assumption. We don't know this. We, we an, an known unknown. Taiwan has got to resist. They cannot capitulate within the first few weeks of this war. If Taiwan surrenders before U.S. forces can actually break through the Chinese blockade, the war is over. 
At that point, China reunifies Taiwan. Well, thank you for that not at all hopeful take. <laughs> well, <laughs> is there? Yeah, I know. And it could be... all go totally different because yeah. that's what the war is. That's true. We'd never know how it's going to go. But is there anything else that you have for us this week? Anything else you want to talk about? The fact that your brother didn't send us in a question this week. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good. That's it for me. Did you want to talk about that? No. Uh, no, I know no. we're at this point and Jensen is listening. So I will say hi to Jensen. How you doing, yes. buddy? Hey, Jensen. You're adorable. That's Jensen, Newton, and Ackles. Either one if you're listening. <laughs> Whichever one, we don't care. Just kidding. <laughs> Jensen Newton wins. Yes, for me. we love Jensen. Wins in my heart. Anyways, um, any, so you don't have anything else to add? No, nothing else. You got okay. anything you want to add? No. In fact, uh, I think we need to go talk to our youngest child as soon as okay. that, we wrap this up because she came in the room and was like shocked. <laughs> she was like, ah, and then she closed the door real fast. So. Let's wrap it up. All right. Well, want to thank you all so much for listening to our humble little tiny geopolitical podcast. We hope that you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or sub- suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakwood Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there. <laughs>